0: You are listening to Demise of the Podcast, and this is Patrick Attaway, here to discuss writing. Specifically today, Brett Easton Ellis is writing as we delve into American Psycho, and I have been nervous about this for weeks because, as I've discussed on previous episodes, this book has been covered. People have done podcasts, they've written theses, they've probably done a dissertation on this book. You can find so much scholarly work on American Psycho. It's unbelievable. Not just the book, but also the film. And people love the film. And if you have come to this podcast thinking that I'm going to be talking about the movie, you are partially incorrect. I probably will discuss the movie during some points of the podcast, but this is more about the book by Brett Easton Ellis. Now, I can discuss... A lot of different things with this book. And I am going to, to try and take my time and really delve into things, do plenty of reading and analysis, but I don't think that I can really offer anything particularly new. I am a white male, and this was written by a white male. The difference between me and Brad analysis is that Brad analysis is not a straight male. He is a uh, gay male, so his perspective is a little bit different than mine, and if you've ever read the book White, you will find that his perspective is different from a lot of people. But, all that aside, I am also a rural southern man. I grew up in Georgia, so my perspective is going to be much different than a guy in New York. And I can't offer a feminist perspective on this because, well, despite the fact that I do believe in women's equality and whatnot, I am not a woman. So I cannot give you that if that is what you've come here for, for some unknown reason. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about what it all means. Does Patrick Bateman actually kill people? Is this book misogynistic? Is this book feminist? I can go on and on about both of those, and I probably will at some point. But a friend of mine has been reading this book, and she is a very intelligent woman. And I haven't gotten the perspective of a woman on this book before. Not on a personal level, at least. So, when this book came out, before it even came out, feminist groups were wanting the book to be banned. They didn't want it to be published. Brady Sinellis got death threats. If you read my book, Price of the Trinity, which both of my books, Demise and Price of the Trinity, are set in alternative timelines, Brady Sinellis is murdered in the early 90s for publishing this book by a radical feminist group. So, this book is very transgressive. People are still offended by this book today. And there are many who write Bryson Ellis off as sexist or misogynistic. So, I don't think that you should listen to this podcast if you're expecting that sort of perspective. I am kind of on the fence about it though in terms of how much of it is purely a commentary on toxic masculinity and how much it is it perhaps a subconscious take on femininity and the dominant white male gaze could american psycho be sexist could it be misogynistic I really cannot offer that interpretation of the book because I don't see it that way. When I read this book when I was 17, you have to keep in mind, for those of you listening for the first time, I was raised by a single mother, didn't have any siblings, and women were very much a part of my life in terms of the people who were influencing me and kind of controlling me, and I first came to this book through the movie when I was 16. I was watching American Psycho on VHS with my girlfriend at her house in Virginia, and I was instantly obsessed, so I originally thought that it was a bad horror movie, and I first heard about it because there used to be this discrepancy online and in some books, that Michael Stipe of R.A.M. produced this movie through his small uh, film company. Of course, the coolest connection to this book through the music world is through John Cale, as he did the soundtrack for the movie. John Cale was the bass player of Velvet Underground and later a very amazing solo artist. After seeing the movie, I bought... American Psycho and the Rules of Attraction, and I credit this this book as the reason why I decided to study English instead of guitar, classical guitar, in college. See, at the time, I was studying classical guitar on my own, had a nylon string guitar, was learning classical pieces on the guitar, and I was also... Coming together as a writer of sorts. I started writing when I was eight, and by the time I got into high school, I was a bit more competent as a writer than my peers because of the experience that I had. Not to say that I was a good writer, but I wrote a short story when I was fifteen as a freshman in high school, and. My teacher liked it so much she was showing other teachers and I entered it into a contest. Didn't win the contest, of course, because the short story was about a guy who not only commits suicide but poisons his brother because he is in love with his sister-in-law. But then, as I grew as a writer, my idea of what good writing is evolved a bit and discovering Bret Easton Ellis at that age was obviously incredibly influential on me. I read Steinbeck, I read Kafka and Orwell, several other classic writers who were not Stephen King. I never got into the whole Harry Potter thing as a kid, so Bret Easton Ellis was my guy. And when I started college and started reading other writers, I found that I still loved Ellis. I still love him today. I still think he's my favorite writer. But that writing style is a lot more complicated than people think. I think that American Psycho has some of the best prose of the 20th century, of the whole postmodern movement. But you probably won't find this in very many academic criteria. You're not going to go to college and take a class and have American Psycho assigned to you unless you take a very specific sort of course on either transgressive literature or the book itself maybe, or maybe a film class where you have to read the book and also watch the movie. It's not widely accepted, also partially because of the controversy surrounding the book and the fact that many consider it to be sexist and misogynistic. Now my friend who's reading this has noted things that I really didn't pay much attention to. Patrick Bateman is definitely a sexist. He's definitely a misogynist. That doesn't necessarily reflect the writer or the content of the book and the meaning of the work, but she noted things like the way he refers to women as hard-body, how often he says the word cunt, things like this that, as a man, I really wouldn't have... Took much notice of, honestly. And she hasn't gotten to the parts where he actually murders and tortures women, which those are pretty gruesome. I question whether or not I'm actually going to read those on the podcast, but we'll get around to it because the first part of the book is not really violent. The violence doesn't start for quite some time, and according to Brett Easton Ellis, only 15 of the almost 400 page novel, 15 pages include graphic violence. So the book is not a murder fest. It's not a gore fest. This is not a horror novel in the sense that we're getting a traditional build up with lots of torture porn. This book is a postmodern look at toxic masculinity and A lot of reviewers have said that this book is not going to matter in a hundred years because it's so based in the 80s, but that's bullshit. When I saw this as a 17-year-old kid in the late thousands, in the late aughts, as they say, this was so relevant to me. The way he critiques these men... These men are not that much different than the southern guys wearing polo shirts and khaki shorts. They sit around in the country club as they go play golf. They drink their little drinks. They have their little dumb conversations. They go home to their wives and their little houses in the suburbs. It's not that much different than what's going on up there in New York. And that's still going on in New York. It's not just because it's based in the 80s, people. If you let the decade, if you let the time period of the book distract you too much, why are we still reading Robinson Crusoe? There's satire specifically of that era that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what's going on now, although some people would argue that it very much does. So I think that people, especially (laughs) reviewers from Rolling Stone, probably don't know shit about literature. And they probably don't know shit about the music they review either, but that's a whole different argument, a whole different podcast. But I am here to read and provide my perspective. It's not necessarily the right or wrong perspective. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. scrawled in blood, red lettering on the side of the chemical bank near the corner of 11th and 1st, and is in print large enough to be seen from the back seat of the cab as it lurches forward and the traffic leaving Wall Street. And just as Timothy Price notices the words a bus pulls up, the advertisement for Les Miserables on its side blocking his view, but Price, who is with Pierce and Pierce, in 26, doesn't seem to care because he tells the driver he will give him $5 to turn up the radio, Be My Baby on WYNN, and the driver... Black, not American, does so. First paragraph is one sentence. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here is scrawled in blood. And then we have the reference to Wall Street, Timothy Price is 26, Lemo's a Rob, and the note that he works with Pearson Pierce, Pierce, and the reference to Be My Baby. And the driver, who was black and not American. So, this one paragraph says a lot about Patrick Bateman. For one thing, a lot of people would not describe paint being blood red. They might say crimson. They might just say red. But blood red... And, mind you, the opening sentence ends with blood, and then the next line begins with red lettering. This is all done on purpose. The first few words, abandon all hope ye who enter here, are capitalized and in bold. This is a message from the writer, folks. And a lot of you are listening to this and probably rolling your eyes like, yes, I know this already. Well, if you know this already... Uh, Go listen to a different podcast. But Price is probably Bateman's best friend, the only person who he really has any interest in. And as I was discussing this book with my friend, who is the lady I mentioned earlier, she and I have discussed the possibility that Patrick Bateman is gay. Bright Easton Ellis has stated in an interview that Patrick Bateman is obviously homosexual, but he, as the writer, did not want people to collude his own sexuality and interpret the book through that lens. So, yeah, it's a high possibility, even if the... Writer says that he's gay. Brady Sinellis is not known for being honest people, but uh, it's there's a high possibility that Patrick Bateman is into Tim Price. But we also get a glimpse at the fact that this is a 26 year old guy. We could call him a kid, really, who's working on Wall Street. In the movie, all these gentlemen do not look like they're in their mid to late 20s. They all look like they're in their mid 30s. I am 29 and I don't look as old as as Christian Bale in American Psycho. These men, it might just be that the way that they're dressed, but also most 26-year-old guys I know don't have the competency to work on Wall Street. Now, I'm sure that there are men and women in their mid to late 20s who are working on Wall Street and successful. I would say that they are in the minority, but again, I'm just a a country bumpkin from a rural town in Georgia. I'm resourceful, Price is saying. I'm creative. I'm young, unscrupulous, highly motivated, highly skilled. In essence, what I'm saying is that society cannot afford to lose me. I'm an asset. Price calms down, continues to stare at the cab's dirty window, probably at the word fear sprayed in red graffiti on the side of the, a McDonald's on 4th and 7th. I mean, the fact remains that no one gives a shit about their work. Everybody hates their job. I hate my job. You've told me you hate yours. What do I do? Go back to Los Angeles? Not an alternative. I, don't, I didn't transfer from UCLA to Stanford to put up with this. I mean, I am alone in thinking we're not making enough money. Like in a movie, another bus appears. Another poster for Les Miserables replaces the word. Not the same bus because someone has written the word dyke over Eponine's face. I don't know how to say her name. Give me a break. Tim blurts out, I have a co-op here. I have a place in the Hamptons, for Christ's sakes. Parents guy. It's the parents. I'm buying it from them. Will you fucking turn this up? He snaps, but distracts, but distractedly at the driver, the crystal still blaring from the radio. It don't go up no higher, maybe the driver says. Timothy ignores him and irritably continues, I could stay living in the city if they just installed Blaupunks in the cabs. Maybe the ODM-3 or... ORC2 dynamic tuning systems, his voice softens here. Either one. Hip, my friend. Very hip. Have we gotten anything from Patrick Bateman here yet? Nope. It's all Tim Price. Tim Price is almost like the protagonist in a sense. Of course he's not, but creative writing professors will tell you to open with the most important character in your book, and thus far... You don't necessarily get that we're getting anything from Patrick Bateman yet, unless you're familiar with the book beforehand. If you open this blindly, you would think that this whole thing was about Tim Price. Diseases, he exclaims, his face tense with pain. There's this theory out now that if you can catch the AIDS virus through having sex with someone who is infected, then you can also catch anything, whether it's a virus per se or not. Alzheimer's, muscular dystrophy, hemophilia, leukemia, anorexia, diabetes, cancer, multiple sclerosis, cystic fibrosis, cerebral palsy, dyslexia for Christ's sakes. You can get dyslexia from pussy. I'm not sure, Guy, but... I don't think dyslexia is a virus. Oh, who knows? They don't know that. Prove it. If you haven't caught on yet, Tim Price is probably high on cocaine. And I, as a man, would probably not give a second thought to him saying you can get dyslexia from pussy, but if I were a woman reading this, well, maybe. So, these gentlemen... Have already set the standard they do not view those with HIV or AIDS as worthy of living they think that this disease can cause other complications well Patrick Bateman may not but uh, he's best friends with Tim Price and then you can get dyslexia from pussy well I don't know if you are aware, but it is a bit more difficult for a man to get HIV from a woman than it is for a man to give it to a woman. Now, there are people listening who are probably yelling by now, but um, this fear throughout the 80s was first that it was a gay disease. And then that it's a disease that is debilitating in other ways that they're unsure of. So you could also trace this whole thing back to the fact that Brett A. Sinellis is a homosexual man at this time. Although he may have been slightly confused about that because he's made references to being with women as well. But, you know, it's very frustrating to be a gay man in the 80s, or really any decade, even now. But uh, there was this fear at the time, and these gentlemen are expressing this fear through ignorance, as many people were. A slow dissolve, and prices bounding up the steps outside the brownstone, Evelyn's father bought her, grumbling about how he forgot to bring the tapes he rented last night to Video Haven. He rings the bell. At the brownstone next to Evelyn's a woman, high heels, great ass, leaves without locking her door. Price follows her with his gaze, and when he hears footsteps from the inside coming from the hallway towards us, he turns around and straightens his Versace tie, ready to face whoever. That little paragraph there is ripe with interpretive parts. The fact that Patrick notices that the woman doesn't lock her door is a little hint that he's a bit predatory and he ogles this woman but notice that he notices her heels before he notices her ass. So his attention to detail throughout this book is what people are wearing before what's underneath including any sort of uh, character or substance they may possess. And then you have Tim also checking this woman out, and he knows that when he hears the footsteps coming, he's got to change who he is. So he straightens out his Versace tie or suit, and he's going to keep up appearances as a gentleman rather than this man ogling this woman with Patrick Bateman. So, Courtney opens the door, and she's wearing a Krizia cream silk blouse, a Krizia rust tweed skirt, and silk satin orze pumps from Manalo Blahnik. I probably mispronounced that. I shiver and hand her my black wool Giorgio Armani overcoat and she takes it from me, carefully air-kissing my right air cheek, my right air cheek, my right cheek. Then she performs the same exact motions on Price while taking his Armani overcoat. The new Talking Heads on CD plays softly in the living room. Now, at this time, the new Talking Heads album would have been True Stories. Now, What's interesting, I just rewatched the movie True Stories, which was made sort of in response to the album, but the album was also made in response to the movie. So apparently the Talking Heads went about making the soundtrack for the film right after they finished Little Creatures. And True Stories is a bit of a companion album for True st- for. True Stories is a bit of a companion album for Little Creatures, rather. And if you watch the film, you see that these songs work better within the concept context of the film rather than the album itself. Now, I like the album fine, but the songs are better in the film. The soundtrack to the film is better than the actual album, so you should check that out. It's on Spotify. But it's interesting that they're listening to it, and there's no real mention of the movie in here. You'd think that Patrick Bateman would know that. A bit late, aren't we, boys? Courtney asks. In at Haitian Cabby, Price mutters. Do we have reservations somewhere, and please don't tell me pastels at nine? Courtney smiles, hanging up both coats in the hall closet. Eating in tonight, darlings. I'm sorry. I know, I know. I tried to talk Evelyn out of it, but we're having sushi. Tim moves past her and down the foyer towards the kitchen. Evelyn, where are you, Evelyn? He calls in a sing-song voice. We have to talk. It's good to see you, I tell Courtney. You look very pretty tonight. Your face has a youthful glow. You really know how to charm the ladies, Bateman. There is no sarcasm in Courtney's voice. Should I tell Evelyn you feel this way? She asks flirtatiously. No, I say, but I bet you'd like to. Come on, she says, taking my hands off her waist and placing her hands on my shoulders, steering me down the hall in the direction of the kitchen. We have to save Evelyn. She's been rearranging the sushi for the past hour. She's trying to spell your initials. The P in Yellowtail, the B in Tuna, but she thinks the tuna looks too pale. How romantic. And she doesn't have enough yellowtail to finish the B, Courtney breathes in. And so I think she's going to spell Tim's initials instead. Do you mind? I'm terribly jealous, and I think I better talk to Evelyn, I say, letting Courtney gently push me into the kitchen. Evelyn stands by a blonde wood counter, wearing a Krizia cream silk blouse. a crisia rust-tweed skirt, and the same pair of satin dorsey pumps Courtney has on. They're dressed exactly the same. Her long blonde hair is pinned back into a rather severe-looking bun, and she acknowledges me without looking up from the oval Wilton stainless steel platter on which she has artfully arranged the sushi. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. I wanted to go to this darling little new Salvadorian bistro on the Lower East Side. Price groans audibly. But we couldn't get reservations. T- Timothy, don't groan. She picks up a piece of the yellowtail and places it cautiously near the top of the platter, completing what looks like a capital T. She stands back from the platter, inspects it. I don't know. I'm so unsure. I told you to keep Finlandia in this place, Tim mutters. She never has Finlandia. Oh, God, Timothy. Can't handle absolute, Evelyn asked, and then contemptibly to Courtney. The California roll should circle the rim of the plate, no? Bateman, drink, price size. J&B rocks, I tell him. suddenly thinking it's strange that Meredith wasn't invited. Okay, the point about these two women being dressed the same way, with the only real difference is Evelyn's hair being in a bun, well... Courtney is the woman showing them hospitality. Evelyn is the one who is the more shrewdish of the two. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Courtney and Patrick are fucking. Evelyn is Patrick Bateman's fiancé, and he's not terribly into her. Now, in the Rules of Attraction, it it mentions that they go to the Caribbean together, I believe, or maybe the Bahamas Are the Bahamas in the Caribbean? I don't know. I'm stupid. But the bun is supposed to represent how she is more reserved than Courtney. Courtney is probably the one coked up and more into maybe trying anal with Patrick, whereas Evelyn is very much starfishing in bed. Why am I noting how these women probably are in bed? Well, that's what matters to Patrick Bateman. Okay, so in order to understand the women in this book, you have to see them through Patrick Bateman's eyes. Now, my friend who's also reading this book noted that she likes Evelyn. And that was weird to me because I figured everyone disliked Evelyn because Patrick Bateman doesn't like Evelyn. And the film, she's portrayed by Reese Weatherspoon, which might make some people like her automatically... But at the time, Reese Weatherspoon didn't have the same kind of cultural cachet, you know, I'm pretty sure this was before legally blonde. Unbeknownst to both Patrick and Tim, Evelyn has invited two friends over Vanden and Stash. Ahem, I cough. Vanden looks over warily, probably drugged to the eyeballs. Stash doesn't move. Hi. Pad Bateman, I say offering my hand, noticing my reflection in a mirror hung on the wall and smiling at how good I look. She takes it, says nothing. Stash starts smelling his fingers. Smash cut, and I'm back in the kitchen. Let's get her out of there, Price is seething. She's doped up watching MTV, and I want to watch the goddamn McNeil-Lear report. Evelyn is still opening large bottles of imported beer and absently mentions, We've got to eat this stuff soon or else we're all going to be poisoned. She's got a green streak in her hair, I tell them, and she's smoking. Bateman, Tim says, still glaring at Evelyn. Yes, Timothy, you're a doofus. Oh, leave Patrick alone, Evelyn says. He's the boy next door. That's Patrick. You're not a doofus, are you, honey? Evelyn is on Mars, and I move toward the bar to make myself another drink. "'Boy next door,' Tim smirks and nods, then reverses his expression and hostily asks Evelyn again if she has a lint brush. Evelyn finishes opening the Japanese beer bottles and tells Courtney to fetch Stash and Vanden. "'We have to eat this now or else we're going to be poisoned,' she murmurs, slowly moving her head, taking in the kitchen, making sure she hasn't forgotten anything. "'If I can tear them away from the latest Megadeth video,' Courtney says before exiting." I have to talk to you, Evelyn says. What about I come up to her? No, she says, then pointing at Tim, to Price. Tim stares at her fiercely. I say nothing and stare at Tim's drink. Be a hun, she tells me, and place the sushi on the table. Tempura is in the microwave, and the sake is just about done boiling. Her voice trails off as she leads Price out of the kitchen. I'm wondering where Evelyn got the sushi, the tuna, yellowtail, mackerel, shrimp, eel, even bonito. All seem so fresh, and there are piles of wasabi and clumps of ginger placed strategically around the Wilton platter. But I also like the idea that I don't know, we'll never know, we'll never ask where it came from, and that sushi will sit there in the middle of the glass table from Zona that Evelyn's father bought her, like some mysterious apparition from the Orient. And as I set the platter down, I catch a glimpse of my reflection on the surface of the table. My skin seems darker because of the candlelight, and I notice how good the haircut I got at Geo's last Wednesday looks. I make myself another drink. I worry about the sodium level in the soy sauce. These are interesting details from Patrick. Uh, I've never once tried soy sauce. I don't like soy sauce. I've never once tried any sauce, and thought about the sodium content. But Patrick is the type to note that Diet Pepsi is better for getting drunk if you're mixing it with alcohol than Diet Coke. By the way, Diet Coke has more caffeine in it than Coke. There's a Patrick Bateman detail for you. But there's obviously something going on between Evelyn and Tim Price because their relationship is more than just a casual friendship. I am not that close with any of my wife's friends. I have to read this section. As they're all sitting down to eat the sushi, Tim is sort of unnerving Bateman because Tim Price is a, a little ignorant when it comes to anything regarding culture or the American economy. Oh, come on, Price, I say. There are more important problems than Sri Lanka to worry about. Sure, our foreign policy is important, but there are more pressing problems at hand. Like what, he asked. By the way, why is there an ice cube in my soy sauce? No, I start. Well, we have to end apartheid for one, and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism and world hunger, Ensure a strong national defense. Prevent the spread of communism in Central America. Work for a Middle East peace settlement. Prevent U.S. military involvement overseas. We have to ensure that America is a respected world power. Now that's... Not to belittle our domestic problems, which are equally important, if not more. Better and more affordable long-term care for the elderly, control and find a cure for the AIDS epidemic, clean up environmental damage from toxic waste and pollution, improve the quality of primary and secondary education, Strengthen laws to crack down on crime and illegal drugs. We also have to ensure that college education is affordable for the middle class and protect social security for senior citizens, plus conserve natural resources in wilderness areas and reduce the influence of political action committees. The table stares at me uncomfortably, even Stash. But I'm on a roll. But economically, we're still a mess. We have to find a way to hold down the inflation rate and reduce the deficit. We also need to provide training and jobs for the unemployed as well as protect existing American jobs from unfair foreign imports. We have to make America the leader in new technology. At the same time, we need to promote economic growth and business expansion and hold the line against federal income taxes and hold down interest rates while promoting opportunities for small businesses and controlling mergers and big corporate takeovers. Price nearly spits up his absolute after this comment, but I tried to make eye contact with each one of them, especially Vanden, who, if she got rid of the green streak and leather and got some color, maybe joined an aerobics class, slipped on a blouse, something by Laura Ashley, might be pretty. But why does she sleep with Stash? He's lumpy and pale and has a bad cropped haircut and is at least 10 pounds overweight. There's no muscle tone beneath the black shirt. But we can't ignore our social needs either. We have to stop people from abusing the welfare system. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless and oppose racial discrimination and promote civil rights while also promoting equal rights for women, but change the abortion laws to protect the right to life, yet still somehow maintain women's freedom of choice. We also have to control the influx of illegal immigrants. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values and curb graphic violence on TV, in movies, and popular music, everywhere. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern and less materialism in young people. I finish my drink. The table sits facing me in total silence, Courtney smiling and seems pleased. Timothy just shakes his head in bemused disbelief. Evelyn is completely mystified by the turn the conversation has taken, and she stands unsteadily and asks if anyone would like dessert. If you break down everything that Patrick Bateman just said, these are ideals from both the left and the right. And you could dissect this and come up with something that either side of the political spectrum would like. Now, he mentions American jobs and illegal immigration, which is interesting because I just read this whole thing on eugenics and the fear that illegal immigrants were going to take over jobs and impregnate our women and we'd have a bunch of uh, unpure children roaming around America. So this is something that is obviously still an issue in America. This was written in the 80s. The eugenic stuff was the early 20th century and late 19th century. So this fear, this xenophobia, is still permeating through our culture. And Patrick Bateman is... Very much in the middle of the aisle politically. He admires Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is not the same kind of figure that he was then. And there's a chance that, yeah, he probably would vote for Trump now. Because Patrick Bateman, despite the fact that he gives the impression that he's intelligent and not a racist, does not care about anything but making money, appearing wealthy, being the smartest guy in the room. That whole spiel... It doesn't make sense to anyone in that goddamn room, and Tim Price knows that Patrick Bateman is putting on a show. That's why he looks at him like that. Patrick Bateman is essentially spewing bullshit here, and he wants to appear intelligent. But all that stuff is things that you could find in a newspaper and just string together. He probably rehearsed all of that in the mirror one day. Skipping ahead to page 23 here. Evelyn laughs and claps as if delighted by Timothy's reluctance to vacate. Come on, fella, I say as I push him roughly out of the bedroom. Betty by time. He still manages to blow her a kiss before I get him out and away. He's completely silent as I walk him out of the brownstone. After he leaves, I pour myself a brandy and drink it from a checkered Italian tumbler. And when I come back to the bedroom, I find Evelyn lying in bed watching The Home Shopping Club. I lie down next to her and loosen my Armani tie. Finally, I ask something without looking at her. Why don't you just go for Price? Oh, God, Patrick, she says, her eyes shut. Why Price? Price? And she says this in a way that makes me think she has had sex with him. He's rich, I say. Everybody's rich, she says, concentrating on the TV screen. He's good-looking, I tell her. Everybody's good-looking, Patrick, she says remotely. He has a great body, I say. Everybody has a great body now, she says. Everybody in their little world. See, Evelyn would not think to date anyone out of her class, so she might as well end up with Patrick because he's not really that much different than everybody else. It doesn't really matter who you end up with as long as they're rich, good looking, and have a nice body. So, there's not much more thought to place into it other than that. And you could think of Evelyn and Patrick's engagement as a matter of convenience, really. I place the tumbler on the nightstand and roll over on top of her. While I kiss and lick her neck, she stares passionlessly at the widescreen Panasonic remote-control television set and lowers the volume. I pull my Armani shirt up and place her hand on my torso, wanting her to feel how rock-hard, how halved my stomach is, and I flex the muscles. Gratefully, it's light in the room so she can see how bronzed and defined my abdomen has become. You know, she says, Stash tested positive for the AIDS virus and she pauses something on the screen catches her interest the volume goes slightly up and then is lowered and I think he will probably sleep with Vanden tonight good I say biting lightly at her neck one of my hands on a firm cold breast you're evil she says slightly excited running her hands along my broad hard shoulder no I sigh just your fiance. Boy, yeah, that's a, a cold remark there that she probably didn't pick up on. After attempting to have sex with her for around 15 minutes, I decide to not continue trying. She says, you know, you can always be in better shape. I reach for the tumbler of brandy. I finish it. Evelyn is addicted to parnate and antidepressant. I lie down beside her watching the home shopping club. at Glass dolls, embroidered throw pillows, lamps shaped like footballs. Lady Zarkonia, with the sound turned off. Evelyn starts drifting. Are you using mic- minoxidil, she asks, after a long time? No, I'm not, I say. Why should I? Your hairline looks like it's receding, she murmurs. It's not, I find myself saying. It's hard to tell. My hair is very thick, and I can't tell if I'm losing it. I really doubt it. So... She denies Patrick sex, which who cares at this point, but then she critiques his hair. Well, Evelyn is on an antidepressant, so there's a lot of shielding and barriers being put up in her life, metaphorically speaking. This is not a critique on people who actually use antidepressants. By the way, As a side note, if I say anything about this book that offends you, just keep in mind that I'm talking about a book and not real life. I once had a person call me an incel because I said that Ramona Flowers changes her hair color in Scott Pilgrim versus the World because, or versus whatever, because she doesn't have a true identity. She's in an identity crisis. She doesn't know who she is and she's trying to find herself. Therefore, she actually lacks substance, and I got called an incel for that as if I was saying that all women who change their hair color are going through identity issues, which maybe they are. Not all women, but some people. When I shave my head, there's a sense of renewing myself, and it's not necessarily an identity issue, but maybe it is. Who knows? But right now, Evelyn is negging Patrick Bateman in a sense when she mentions that uh, he can always look better he can always be in better shape after going through the whole spiel about why she wouldn't be interested in Tim Price versus Patrick Bateman at no point does she make Patrick Bateman feel secure about himself she doesn't do much to sway him from thinking that she's fucking Tim Price and then she says that it looks like his hairline is receding, which to say that to a man in his 20s is not very nice. Now, when I grow my hair out, I have a, um, a bit of a, a thinning spot near the fulcrum of my head. And sometimes I do feel self-conscious about it, admittedly. But when I grow my hair out more, you can't really notice it. So part of that is the fact that I shave my head a lot. But if I grew it out, let it be thicker, yeah, you wouldn't really notice it. But there are some men my age, their late 20s, early 30s, who have these issues. And it's not really nice to bring up. And it's one of those things like, so we're talking about masculinity and toxic masculinity, where there's another side to that. And our society has deemed things like, balding, receding hairlines, the size of our penises, these are things that are worth critiquing for some reason. And we should feel bad about it. We're lesser men because of it. And yet there are men out there who are bald, who may not have big dicks, who are loved and accepted by society. So masculinity is a construct, but it's not a finite construct. It is actually... Uh, more of a binary, in a sense, and it's contradictory. There's no finite sense of what it is to be a man in our society. And I'm going to take this to Two and a Half Men right now. Okay, I'm putting the book down. Alan Harper, at the beginning of Two and a Half Men, is one paradigm, one part of masculinity that society celebrates. He is well-dressed. He's a chiropractor, so he's gainfully employed at the time at the beginning of the series. He loves his wife. He loves his son. They have a house in the suburbs. And despite the fact that they're getting a divorce, which is also commonly accepted in our society now, it's an unfortunate thing, but... He is not someone that should feel ashamed of who he is, according to society. And yet, he hates himself because his marriage has failed. Then you have his brother, Charlie, who is also celebrated and accepted as a paradigm of masculinity in our American culture. He's a party boy. He is rich. He has a beach house. He sleeps with young women. These two things don't line up. You can't be both. You can't be a conservative married man with a kid and also be the wild party guy who's single and fucking younger women on the beach. Just can't happen. Unless you're living two different lives. Okay? Now, why are these both accepted? And then as the series progresses... Charlie, because of his age alone, is now defying a standard. Because at a certain point, it becomes creepy for the older guy to start hitting on women, does it not? So, masculinity, what it means to be a man in our society, well, there's no one rule, but we're all expected to follow it. And yes, I know it's hard to be a woman. I would not trade places with women. Believe me you, we still live in a patriarchy. I'm still a white male. I still have the most privilege. Not to demean the experience of anyone else in this world, we're talking about white men right now, though. So, no, I'm not saying that people should be red-pilled. No, I'm not saying that men's activist groups are right. They're full of bullshit. But the patriarchy affects men in a different way, okay? It affects us all, men and women. So there are people out there who think that by calling attention to these issues, we are trying to ignore the issues of other people. I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and she says, well, it's much worse to be a woman. Well, I know this, but we're not talking about women right now. We're talking about my experience as a man. But, you know, some people don't want to hear it. But this is my podcast, so I'm going to talk about what the fuck I want. And if you don't like it, turn it off. So we managed to get through the first chapter, the first 24 pages in American Psycho. And I'm going to start the second chapter in the next episode. I promise it will not be a chapter, an episode, because this podcast would last forever. Uh, Although that would be interesting, wouldn't it, to go through each chapter in, in a podcast episode and discuss it in depth. I don't know that you would reach any sort of conclusion by the end of it. I mean, the book is 400 pages long. But I appreciate you listening to Demise of the Podcast. And I assure you that if you did not like this episode, you will not like the following episodes, but I would appreciate it if you listened. If you would like to support the podcast or me, Patrick Attaway, go buy my books. I will not accept donations. I will not start a Patreon or any sort of thing like that. I solely want you to go buy my books if you want to support the podcast or me or both. So... You can find my books on Amazon under my name, Patrick Attaway. Demise of the Trinity and Price of the Trinity are my novels that came out this year. I have several poetry books and a short story collection called Disease of Ambition. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick Attaway with a little extra Y on the end. I have had people ask me why there's an extra Y at the end of Patrick Attaway, and that's because Patrick Attaway was taken already. So if you would like to ask me more dumb questions, you can find me on Twitter. If you'd like to complain about the podcast, you can take it and shove it up your butt. So have a wonderful weekend, people, and happy reading.